0: I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and I can't stop chasing the question, what would the world look like with more listening? This is Listening on Purpose. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of Listening on Purpose. We're nearing the end of our second season, and I'm really happy to finally bring you a conversation about something I think about a lot. And I imagine that you do too. And that is artificial intelligence, uh, commonly referred to as AI. We hear a lot about this in the news today. And as AI inevitably grows and becomes a more complex, powerful tool, it also opens up a lot of questions like what happens to humans? How do we use these tools to our benefit? but retain our humanness and how do we still have the need for human creativity? This week's guest brings some real insight to a lot of these questions. His name is Noah Zandan. He is the CEO and founder of a company called Quantified Communications, which is an AI based company with the vision of using artificial intelligence to actually increase human connection. We cover quite a bit in this episode, but most importantly, how AI and humanity exist together and how humanness will never be replaced, and how in spite of all of these technological advances, that community will be more important than ever. Enjoy this episode. A big thank you to Austin PBS for the use of one of their studios to record this conversation. Here is yours truly and Noah Zandan. Enjoy it. Man, welcome! Thank you. I'm glad we're finally getting to do. I know. This. I know. Every time, every time we meet, there's like a
1: weather implication. <laughs>
0: we've been trying to do this for a while. The last one got canceled because of an ice storm um, in Austin, Texas. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you were without power for a while. We were. Weren't you? Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, so glad we're finally getting to sit down. And I know we've we've had some good conversations over coffee or lunch, and yeah. so. I know we've got some things that we want to kind of dig into and on, on the mind, but I just want to give everyone a little background about how we met. Okay. And so you're the CEO and a founder of a company called Quantified Communications. And when I was a student at Harvard Business School, uh, part of the program, we used your platform. And um, so I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about what Quantified Communications is and what the technology is, and then I can sort of tie in how we used it and how that went about. So Quantified is –
1: I created Quantified in order to use technology and data and more recently artificial intelligence to help people become better humans. Mm. And so it's a really unique use case of technology. A lot of technology you see right now is trying to help automate things, make life better, life easier, or take things off people's plates – what we're thinking about really carefully is the fundamental activity of human behavior. Like, what 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 is it? What excites all of us is connecting with other people. Yeah. And there's a skill to that, absolutely. And there's a pattern to that. Um, in my career, I was learning a lot of the like hard contributor skills. So I started quantified in order to expand my own personal skill set. And mm. I was looking for research and data and evidence about like how do I become a better leader and better at connecting. And over the past decade or so, I've built a, a business, an application, a technology, a system, a platform to help unlock that for, for a ton of people. Yeah. Right? And so part of the benefits of using technology to do is we can do it at scale. Mm-hmm. You know, The best coach could sit with you, Tim, for 45 minutes and really elevate your capabilities as a human speaker, human conversationist, someone who can connect with others. Um, I want to give you like 80% of that. Yeah. In an automated way. That's Mm -hmm. super affordable. Right. And so we can give that to millions of people.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. You know, when we used the platform at HBS, we were assigned various prompts to upload. So we would I can't remember exactly. I think one of them I know is we had to record a video of ourselves having a critical conversation with a colleague Uh, there. So there were various things that we were asked to record and then upload to the platform and it it scores you um, on various elements. And I have to say, I was pretty dubious. I've told you this before, (laughs) but I found myself sort of picking at things about the platform. Um, But then when I really put all of that aside and I looked at what it was telling me, it ended up being one of the most insightful activities during my time at HBS uh, because I, I got some pretty good marks in various areas, and so it you know in all the different ways that it scores you, and I want to get into that a little bit. But one where I ranked really low was storytelling, and so and I was really shocked because I thought I'm I'm a storyteller, that's what I do as a conductor, right? I, I am a storyteller, but then I really realized that in interpersonal communication and even in speaking that I was not only really taking advantage of storytelling as a device to connect with people, but I was also pretty stingy about letting other people do that with me and really engaging with other people's stories. And so it ended up being this incredibly insightful thing that I'm really grateful for. (laughs) Thank you. It's uh. It's really fun.
1: I mean, we get to go around the world and do this work and we because it's AI and because it's data, no offense, it doesn't care about you. Right? It doesn't know right. Tim, it doesn't know that Tim is a storyteller and Tim is a creative and Tim has this history of doing this stuff. It doesn't know if it's a CEO or, you know, someone who's in their first semester of college. And so it just looks at your behavior. Yeah. And, and of course, there's context to that and there's prompts and there's situations and and everything, but One of the really cool things that we're able to do with the data is just be very, very consistent with the way that we deliver feedback and look at everybody from the same benchmark if if that's an appropriate benchmark. So when it does come to stories, I mean, the data is incredible on stories. In in an average minute, the average person tells two and a half facts and Mm. zero stories. But if you look at all the research about what connects people to each other, right, go back to what we're trying to help people do, stories elevate our brains. There's research out of Yuri Hassan at Princeton has done some amazing you know, neuro research about what happens when someone hears and tells a story and the, the synthesis that happens on the neurological level. Right. And about 10% of people, if like told to speak, will actually tell a story. Wow. One in 10. Wow. And we all know stories work and stories connect and we look up right. to these great storytellers. But it's a it's a rare trait, uh, and we're trying to help people on that journey.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. So, what other what are the other metrics that quantified communications in that process? And I know that I know that this tech has grown even yeah. since what it was probably a year and a half or two years ago. Since I was you know part so for- of it, but it's really. accelerating quickly
1: for the program that you went through, we gave you a standardized model of effective communication. It's four quadrants of human connection. It's what you say. So your word choice, it's your vocal delivery, your nonverbal visual delivery, and then basically a prediction of what people are going, how people are going to perceive you. We call that audience perception. So 24 different skills broken up into four quadrants of human connection. Mm -hmm. Truth be told, Tim, there are 1400 metrics we pull out of your video. Wow every wow. word you say, how you how long you sent how long your sentences are, how long your syllables are, what you do with your vocal inflection, a lot of advanced vocal metrics like jitter and shimmer that most people wouldn't even be familiar with, uh, nonverbals like eye contact, how much you smile, what your facial expressions look like. Yeah. And we're using those to model against a model of audience preference. So for for Harvard and for the course that you were in, it was a general model for effective communication. We can also advance custom models. And so if you're a CEO and want to do great on an earnings call, we can look at the factors that, in, that influence stock price. Got if it. If you're on a sales team and you want to close a deal quickly, we can look at the factors that influence effective selling. And so as the model gets more advanced, we can build customized use cases that are more predictive of the situational outcome that you want to get
0: to. Interesting. That's really fascinating. What landed you here? Because you have an interesting background. You're a musician. And so we also connect on yeah. that level. Um, and so what led you to this interest um, and to kind of create this, this company?
1: Yeah, so I, I play the classical guitar. Yeah. Uh, the reason I play the classical guitar was my mom was a huge Grateful Dead fan. <laughs> and Jerry Garcia, their, their lead vocalist and singer, uh, had a regret at the end of his career that he didn't play more classical guitar. So at the age of five, Tim, my mom signed me up for classical guitar lessons, put a like it was barely a guitar, more of like a ukulele in my hands. And all of a sudden, like five years later, I'm 10 years old. I can read music. I can play guitar. Mm. It was pretty cool that she put me on that journey. I don't think I knew what I was doing, but um, kudos to her for being ahead of that through a dying regret of her favorite musician. (laughs) (laughs) So so I'm a a creative kid growing up. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, you know, I studied, I went down this path that really led me towards business, studied econometrics in college, found myself working as a quant on wall street, Mm -hmm. prestigious work, impressive work, right? High profile, high stress work. I'm doing it for a few years and I just, the creativity was bundled up. Like I Mm. I couldn't, it, it didn't work for me at the level of like I want to be doing, I want to be creating things. Like it was really interesting work, but it was very structured, very like financial Excel. Like I kind of lived my day in Microsoft Excel and I wanted more connection and creativity and entrepreneurship. My dad was an entrepreneur and so his dad was an entrepreneur, right? Like it's in my blood. And so... Part of my journey was looking at my life at a certain inflection point in my career and saying, what, what do I see value from? like what drives me, What excites me? Yeah. And I wasn't getting enough of that. Mm. And so I, I started the journey really to unlock my own skills as I said. Yeah. and then all of a sudden I was like, huh, I wonder if there's actually a business here right So it's the blending of kind of a selfish need to unlock and elevate my skill set with the question of is there a universality to like this need of human connection? And can I blend my professional background with some creative pursuits and creative interests in order to build something that's never been done before?
0: Wow. I love how it came about so organically, right? And it and it really was something that grew out of a desire to create, learn more, and connect yeah. more. Kind of dipping back to AI and human connection, obviously... I mean, AI is the top of the news ticker right now. We're in a hype cycle. We're Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, chat GPT is this huge thing. And, of course, they're gathering data, I mean, just on a massive scale right now, But engaging people on the platform. And I think w- the general population, we hear about a lot of this. And some of us might even go and toy with it a little bit. But... I really want to understand, first of all, what the technology is, and then come back around to kind of the, how does it connect with humanness? But how does this technology work? I mean, what is it doing? You know, you've in quantified, gathered billions of data points, from what I understand, Yeah. right? So can you just give, for the layman, a basic idea of AI and how it generally functions?
1: Sure. So, so the reason we're in such a hype cycle right now is this, is this is a second phase of AI. Phase one, I like to call better math.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: Predictive analytics, big data, that phase of our, you know, which was about, i call it 2010, turned into AI models that became highly, highly effective at running better math than a human or even a spreadsheet could right. do. And so the excitement initially was, oh, wow, we can do things really accurately mm. that we've never been able to do before. So if I have a high-pressure situation, i got a nuclear reactor, right. and I want to know if it's going to melt down. Right. I want the most accurate formula
0: possible. Right. And, and that can happen as quickly as possible, exactly. right? That would take humans an, running models And AI time. can solve that problem. Right. They're
1: much better than me with a calculator. Right. Yeah, yeah. Got it. <laughs> so phase one of AI is better math. Uh, about – Five years ago, people started to think about can we build phase two of AI.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, OpenAI was founded, you know, famously by a lot of you know well-known people in San Francisco, yep. and and they had a thesis that the next phase of AI would move from better math to what I would call an autocomplete. Mm. And generative AI essentially is just incredible autocomplete for whatever you prompt it with, and so what it means is. Phase one of AI was, can we do math problems really effectively? Phase two of AI is, can we do language problems? Right. Because we have now scraped massive amounts of language data. And based upon that body, that corpus of language data, we can predict what, the, what you are prompting. We can predict the output of that prompt, that question. And so large language models, which is kind of what, where this next enablement phase of AI has come from, are built upon billions and billions of informational data points, mostly from the Internet. Right. It's such a massive data set that it's really accurate at predicting what you're asking it. And so what's so powerful about that is you can say, I'd like to see an image of this. I'd like you to write a story or write a song or write a poem. I'd like to have all the facts about this. And it can do that because it has this massive data set to pull from. The other thing that's really impressive that not a lot of people talk about is how fast it pulls it. Right, right. It's incredible the amount of compute. You couldn't have done that 10 years ago. We didn't have the compute, the processing power. Right. Now that we have the processing power, we can get amazingly we can get an amazing breadth of answers very quickly. Yeah. And so generative AI has really opened a lot of people's eyes to this next phase of AI. And that's why people are so excited about it right now.
0: And that computing power is just continuing to explode, right? I mean, at what rate is technology advancing? I heard a stat recently that it will advance more in the next seven years than in the last 50-something.
1: Yeah, the famous principle is Moore's Law. But a lot of the research says right now that we are moving faster than Moore's Law. So the Moore's Law is like, I think it doubles every six months. Uh-huh. And I think it's at 50% faster than that now.
0: Wow. Yep. Wow. So what are ways that we're already utilizing AI that maybe we don't know? I mean, obviously now we're carrying around little supercomputers in our pockets. We've got some sitting on the table right here. So I assume that we are and have been utilizing artificial intelligence probably without knowing it for quite some time.
1: So it comes down to what do you what do you consider to be AI, right? How formal does the intelligence need to need to be to use AI? I mean, you turn on Netflix at the end of the day. Right. AI is embedded in the shows that Netflix recommends you to watch. The Netflix recommendation algorithm is one of the famous sort of yeah. initial use cases of AI. Uh, the way that the logo looks is probably tested with AI. The tagline for the shows mm. are all tested with AI, and so I think people are probably. We're less familiar with what I would call the, like, embedded use cases of AI, which are everywhere in our lives. Yeah. Where people are becoming more conscious of them is now these AI use cases are becoming more sort of influential, more complete, more up front to us. And, you know, but I, I would say, Tim, almost everything you use on a daily basis has some AI component in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that alarming at all? Because there is an element, like, and, and this is one of the reasons this conversation fascinates me is because we tend to have these kind of Hollywood ideas about some of these things, like ghost in the machine kind of, yeah. kind of idea. And obviously technologies like this will be leveraged for good and bad.
1: So the people that are creating it are very upfront that there's a lot that can go wrong. Personally, for me, I think we're we're struggling with something called trust and authenticity, which is AI is reaching the point where people don't know if it's being used or not. So, mm, right. let's take the example of last week. There was you know some famous musicians. I think it was Drake and The Weeknd, and they had a, a musical song created by AI. They had no input on it. Right. And it was created by AI, and it was a it was a great song. They had no input. They got no royalties. And they're kind of like, wait, our what we created with our human creativity has now been replicated right. by an AI. Right. Like, is that okay? Right. And I think that that's a really fundamental question that humanity needs to ask right now. The way that the language models have been released, anyone can do that work. You know, you and I, if we spent enough time, could recreate a song of any famous musician, going back to the classics. Right. And so it gets down to trust and authenticity because. Are we upfront about that? Do Mm. we talk about it? Do we source the AI? I was speaking at a a business school two weeks ago, and I asked the students, are you allowed to use GPT in the classroom? And this is a pretty forward-thinking class. It is about actually the intersection of AI and human technology. Like, that's the name of the class. And so fortunately, the professor, who's great, said, you're welcome to use AI. You just need to source it. Got it. Okay. And so I think hopefully that's where we go, which is... Everyone's going to use it because it can make humans perform better. Right. But we have to acknowledge that it's happening in the background. And I hope that people are upfront about doing that. I think a lot of people won't be. Right. And they'll just say, oh, yeah, I created this because I'm a human genius.
0: Right. And that sort of brings us to the question of how do we retain our humanness right now that artificial intelligence can – create these things or for example there's even this usage case of someone feeding it a sketch of you know an unfinished beethoven's tenth symphony and it completes it not very well but that was a while back right and so i mean obviously this stuff is moving forward and getting better and better how do we as humans like and i don't even know how to phrase this question but retain our human advantage over technology or retain, you know, you started this company to create connection. And so it's this beautiful thing of leveraging technology to create human connection. But is there a separateness that we need to maintain there? How do we maintain it? You know, if I think of myself as an artist, I want people to come to a performance and have a really unique experience, right, that was curated for them in that moment but it seems like these lines could easily get very blurred between what a machine creates what a human creates and is what the machine creates just as special or arguably
1: more special because hmm. it can do more than a human ever could uh it, if i think about your question i go back to what as a human what keep like what keeps us alive right yeah. why are we here yeah uh, and you know, a lot of the research and <laughs> a personal opinion is relationships, right? We're here to build relationships with other people. We're here to learn and grow and, you know, survive as a species. And I think that right now we're afraid that AI is going to intrude on that. Yeah. And I think we as a species are going to have to fundamentally come to grips with the fact that AI is not here to make us, it's not here to make us less human. It's not here to damage human relationships. Mm. Hopefully, it's here to help us enjoy the things that humans love doing, take the load off of things that computers and technology can handle. Yeah. The same, I kind of look at it the same way as an introduction of a calculator. Mm. Right? I mean, when I was in school, it was still like, okay, you can't use a calculator on this test. Right. But calculators make you better at math. And are, mm. are we worried about calculators taking over the world? <laughs> right. <laughs> but we're at the similar phase of ai where it's like no you can't use the ai right or or you know ai is scary it might take over it's certainly more powerful than a calculator but if it makes us better at doing things that frankly the math on a calculator i i've never not had access to a calculator when i needed one right and so if i can have that that level of access to the world's information through ai or if i can have that access frankly to really cool ways to be creative or augment my my own creativity i think that's a really empowering thing to let me enjoy relationships and emotional reactions and all those things that you said you wanted to deliver that's exciting
0: so from an efficiency standpoint it's it's an important tool it sounds like you're kind of heading there with it and how would that look for example for someone like a like a performer right in in uh, in doing what i do how can we leverage ai going into the future
1: so i think what's what's so impressive about ai is it can discover patterns and as you said make us more efficient and augment human performance like never before i'll, I'll take my son has started to play chess. Mm-hmm. He's six years old, loves chess. It's cool. awesome.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, he's in a chess club at school and he's learning chess. And he plays against these AIs all the time, right? So A, AI is a practice partner for him. Got and it. he can choose how difficult or, or, or not. What's really interesting is as you get to the higher levels of chess, AI can think in novel ways that, that humans are generally constrained. So when the chess masters, the grandmasters, play chess against an AI – The AI can think in 20, 30, 40 moves, Mm. whereas human capacity to do that thought is limited. Yeah. So I'm answering your question to say, if we embrace it, it could expand the human capacity for intelligence and connection and performance in a really novel way because it's able to go past the human capacity, the individual human capacity of thought.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that certainly includes creativity. You know, I mean, I, as a musician, right, I, I am trained on certain pieces and then hopefully at some point I can create my own pieces based upon my training. Right. If I plug AI into that, then my training set less limited, Hmm. my creativity, my instrument capacity, less limited. Right. Right. Now you still want, you still want to get that human emotional reaction, right? So if it's just, it's just everything everywhere all at once, you're not going to get that. So you still have to figure out how to bring that out of people because in the end, Right now, we still want the humanity.
0: Right, right.
1: But the AI can elevate performance in a way that no one ever thought possible.
0: Yeah, well, and taking off on this idea of kind of retaining the humanity of it, which has been a theme of the conversation, I've always thought about one thing that would be different about humans is our capacity for risk, right? And I think about this just as a performer, for example, you know, you're know, you coming to the opera next week. I mean, that's a what's gonna happen on that evening involves risk, right? Because everyone is prepared, everyone is rehearsed, everyone has years and years of training and whatever they're, and I'm talking whether it's me or a principal artist or a dancer or an orchestral musician, a stagehand, an usher, right? All of these things that go into creating a live performance but there's risk there. Right. And that's one of the things that I believe makes live performance so special is that it's a lot of people taking a risk and it's the audience taking a risk to buy a ticket, you know, drive to the theater, sit down, turn off their device. And obviously the audience wants it to go very well. So they have a gratifying experience. And so I, at least for the last couple of years as AI has been really growing thought, well, maybe one of the things that is important about humanity and the, you know, the emotion of something like that is the fact that there's risk involved. Is that also something that can be overtaken by AI? I'll go back to that chess example.
1: No human would ever do the risky moves that the AI does in chess because they just seem like the grandmasters would say, well, why would you do that move? That makes no sense. I've never seen, you know, they study every move ever made by humans. Right. And they would say, I don't understand this move. Hmm. But the AI can take risk because it can see things that human capacity can't see. Hmm. And it actually encourages humans to consider those risks as potential positive things to do, novel introductions into the game of chess, in order to perform better. Right. The, the second thing I'd say, though, is I, I think you're looping back to something about humanity, right? Which is if I come to the opera, if I come to see a live performance, you know, I, I'm not there to watch you turn a button on and play something. Right. Right. I'm there because of the risk. You know, I had the, the honor of speaking at TED a few years ago. Yeah. And one of the great coaches at TED reminded us as, we, as all the speakers were getting ready, you know, before the week of TED, she said, remember, your audience is supporting you. Yeah. But they love surprises. Oh, interesting. The brain loves surprises. Yeah. So it's a reminder that even, you know, perfect intelligence can't tie into the humanity, like humans desire to be surprised. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's why we're we're so excited about AI right now is because it's so surprisingly good. Oh, interesting. That surprise will wear off. And so what's the next novel thing? Maybe it's artificial intelligence. Maybe it's not. But- the The true intelligence comes from like actually bringing out human emotion, yeah. And AI is augmenting that right now, which I think is so exciting. But the human part has a lot to do with our capacity to be engaged and excited. And I think that's we'll probably loop back to that in a bigger way.
0: And how does AI impact human emotion, like you just mentioned? How is that functioning?
1: I think we're impressed.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We're excited and impressed, and we're also a little scared. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's the emotion we're pulling on. But if you look at you know, emotional regulation, right, like it's doing all of that right now in a very heavy way, more than any tech. I mean, as Bill Gates said last month, more than any technology he has seen since the GPU. Wow. Which is a phenomenal thing for someone like that to say. So he is impressed. Right. That's going to wear off.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Humans have a great, you know, we don't have a good capacity for long-term thinking and something is coming next. I I don't know how long it's going to take, but this AI hype will end. It's going to change our lives. Fundamentally, we will use it way more than we did in the past, but there's something that's coming next. Hmm. And that's something I can promise you is going to pull on human relationships and human connection and human emotion because that's what gets us excited.
0: Let's dig into that more, sort of if you put your futurist hat on a little bit, not to such an easy l- question. yeah, right. but I, no, this is something that I love to talk about is you know, in my passion for creating experiences for human connection, but you're thinking, and what you're I think you're saying is that as sort of the hype about AI wears off, it will actually come back to our need for human connection and emotional experiences, shared experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, when I think about that, I I think about as an artist, and especially in live performance, is we've always had this thing of, well, do we, um, you know, are we entertainment, right? And I've I've recently been thinking a lot about, A, it seems a little foolish to kind of try and compete in the entertainment space or in the modern entertainment space as we know it. I guess I should be more specific about that because for example, companies like Netflix are putting billions of dollars a year into content and really in a lot of ways struggling to find differentiation with their competitors, right? <laughs> and and as we see kind of what happened with Netflix's stock performance over the last year. Um, and so all of these companies are putting a ton of resources behind it and trying to create this. But is it working? And it is I think is the question. And so my thought is, as people, what if live performance were the antidote to modern entertainment. Right? What if you you know, you coming into a concert hall or an opera house was this is your opportunity to completely disconnect from technology and to have a shared experience. So I love what you're saying, right? And I actually think what what I the
1: the thread I'd pull on that comes down to technology. If you look at the last 20 years, our lives have been overwhelmed and overtaken by technology. Yeah. So it's not, it's not just the AI, right? It's the Netflixes and the YouTubes and the social media platforms. And the thesis, the original thesis, or maybe the intended mission of those businesses, is to connect us more as humans. Right. They don't. Netflix mm-hmm. does not connect me more with my community, my spirituality, yeah. I mean, even really my friends, right? I, it it can it's an experience that can be had solo almost as effectively as it can be had Mm, in a shared form. I feel like we are missing community. Mm. And I feel like that is starting to happen. There's been some research that said that young people are actually starting to get more spiritual and more connected to religion. Mm. We've lost it. Technology has completely taken away our, you know, our neighborly relations, our community, our spirituality, and and it's it's filling a lot of time. But I think it's not very gratifying in the way that it fills that time. Right. And so my hope and my hunch, Tim, is that we'll go back to live experiences, a shared moment of human connection. And, you know, music can solve that arts and entertainment, religion. Yeah. It's so important for people to have a sense of community. There's a ton of research that talks about that being, you know, a pivotal part for humanity and human enjoyment and satisfaction from the world. We don't have it right now. We like fundamentally, if you were to ask me, Noah, what is your community? It's a hard answer. Yeah. For most of us. Yeah. Because we're not getting it from technology. And I don't think technology is ever going to fu- fully solve that problem.
0: It's not necessarily in the interest of the major technology companies, is it? It's
1: not. It's right. not in their business model.
0: And that's, you know, that's a hard thing to think about. But in, in a way that it, it's actually dividing us in a lot of ways. Hey, everybody. It's Tim. My team and I work really hard to make this show meaningful for all of you, and we'd love to hear from you about what you're liking and also what you might want more of. I'm easy to find on Instagram at motmyers, that's M-O-T-M-Y-E-R-S, and always happy to hear from you via email. That's timothy at timothymyers.com. Also, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would be willing to leave a rating and a review, or pass on to a friend, that helps a lot. Back to the show. If everything becomes easy and fast, what do we do then?
1: hmm
0: I mean, what, what do you do then?
1: I don't think people know. I think that's what's so scary. Is, is what do we do? I mean, if leisure time, if, you know, there's a lot of research about the the efficiency improvements of AI. Yeah. And, you know, it's probably somewhere between 18 and 30 percent people, workers will be more efficient if they use AI. Yeah. What do you do with that extra time? Do right. you work more? Right. Do you exercise more? Do you invest in your health? Do you invest in community? Do you sleep? Right. You know, what do you do? I mean, unfortunately, I think the research would say people are going to spend more time with other forms of technology. And so that's the part that scares me is, can we, how do we as a, how do we remind ourselves of what makes us, what really brings us fulfillment? Right. And can we, can we, if AI truly automates some forms of our life, can we move towards fulfillment, move towards happiness, move towards connection and, and human creation, as opposed to moving towards more technology, which is sitting there and so good at getting our, our time.
0: Yeah, It, it totally. and then you kind of introduce the other element of advancements in aging yeah right and longevity so if let's say we do get 18 to 30 percent more efficient at doing our jobs or you know air quotes around jobs but you know what we might consider the work but yet we're you know it's very likely that our children Will live until at least 100, mm-hmm. and even for you and me. And so, with these advancements, you know, people are living longer. We've got more generations in the workforce than ever before. And so, you know, if you're creating more time by being more efficient, but then you're also living longer, that's a whole lot of time for us to generate something with, right? Or to do something with.
1: And what do we do with all that time?
0: Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about. I think
1: it's terrifying for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is, I had a conversation recently with Chip Conley, um, and you know, did an episode together and to, it's so fascinating, you know, him, his idea of this modern elder uh, yeah. idea of, you know, people uh, in later generations really turning around and and taking what they've learned over their careers and what the and contributing it to the younger generations, but that there's also this synergy between them, right? So that the that the older generations are learning, you know, they might be teaching the younger generations EQ and but they're learning from the younger generation's DQ, you know, digital intelligence, <laughs> right? And I, you know, as we talk about you know, humanness, this is a really interesting thing that we're going to be confronting over the next generation, especially, is this confluence of becoming more efficient and then also just being able to live longer. Yeah. It's kind of wild to think about.
1: Leisure is coming.
0: Right. <laughs> we need more art.
1: I, I I agree. I mean, I think we need more art. We need more community. We need more health. Yeah. You know, and I and I hope that we can move towards those things, and I hope we can become more conscious of, of the things we want to move towards, as opposed to the things that are just amazingly programmed to grab our attention in time.
0: Yeah, totally. On that note, I'm I'm just curious for you as a parent. You know, we both have young kids. How do you handle that with your kids? Uh, you know, do you? There's a lot of question around this. You know, how early do you expose them to certain things, devices, et cetera, et cetera. Have you and your spouse put a you know a lot of things around that? I'm just curious as a to hear from another parent, you know, your ideas on this. So I have three. I have three kids.
1: Uh, my oldest is six, and I have twins that are four. Uh, they're wonderful kids, and. and- Tim, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I, I have, I know how it was done with me, and you know, all I can do is reflect upon the things that I liked and the things that I don't like, and the behaviors that I have that you know came up from a system where my parents were trying to do their best. Right. Um, you know, when it comes to technology my personal philosophy is that kids should naturally form their own healthy boundaries. Mm. I think that if, you know, parents should give kids guidance about boundaries and, and and be there to hold their hand, but also allow them to go past what's comfortable Mm. and to explore that for themselves. I, with our kids, you know, we really let them pursue screen time, but if it, if we see negative outcomes of that, we'll talk to them about that. Mm and my hope is that they can build safe boundaries and guardrails cuz i'm not always going to be there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And right. so if the
1: only time that they don't use screens or, is when i'm there, then guess what? They're going to figure out systems to get whatever they want out of the technology when i'm not there.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: And you know, i i try to start that pretty young. I you know, our 6-year-old, he's allowed to use technology and allowed to play games. I mean, we put limits on it to some degree, but i'm not a no screen time, no technology you know, you need to go play in the dirt all day. Right. I hope that he loves playing in the dirt. Right. And I hope that he he enjoys that. But if he only does that because his parents tell him to, I don't think that's an authentic decision. And I want him to learn that decision-making muscle.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think you're right about, you know, teaching them to think critically about what they do. And I uh, there was a speaker at South by uh, who I heard this year who was talking about, look, at this point, And again, he made it clear that this was just his personal opinion, but it resonated with me that if if you are not allowing your child access to this kind of technology, like, for example, using a tablet, that you're really handicapping them moving into the future. Right. So that like you're saying, sure, I mean, put limits on YouTube or, or what, you know, whatever it is, and that's easy enough to do, but that it's important to give them access to these things as these are really the tools, not just of the current day, but of the future.
1: Yeah. I'll give you an equivalent example. As a kid, my parents said no sugar ever. Yeah. I was not allowed to touch, eat, get anywhere close to sugar. I don't think I had a soda until I was 14.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: Everything was sugar free. There was no sugar in my life at all. Very, very controlled. It wasn't to my benefit.
0: Right. I didn't
1: learn boundaries. I didn't learn control. And so all of a sudden, when I got to a world where I could buy my own sugar, right. I didn't have that muscle. Yeah. And, you know, the harshness of that boundary, I understand the intention. Yep. Of course, the intention was pure and positive. Absolutely. But it didn't teach me the self-control and the self-regulation that I wish that I would have learned Yeah, at a younger age.
0: Yeah. No, that's an interesting example. I had a, the same experience. I grew up in a really very, very religious household, right? And so there were a lot of things formed around that that I think, again, it doesn't instill in you this idea of critical thinking as much as what to think. And I know, you know, our oldest is also six and in kindergarten. And when we were looking, visiting schools, my wife and I talked about it and we were really clear on transference of knowledge is useless, right? It's, it's, that's a low bar for education uh, because a it's all readily accessible to them anyway and so really teaching them how to think critically about information that comes to them and then to think creatively about solving problems that don't yet exist yeah right because like we've talked about there's these things are moving so quickly there are things that you and i i'm mean, you probably more than me have imagined but that i can't even wrap my head around that our our children will deal with in their lifetime.
1: Yeah, and they're gonna have GPT-20 yeah. on their smartphones, which are probably gonna be a neural chip in their brains. Right. Every piece of human knowledge is going to be accessible to them on an almost instantaneous basis.
0: Yeah, and space travel will be common,
1: right? Probably, it's, yeah.
0: It's, I mean, it's just interesting to think about these things in regards to what what could happen with our children. You know, which makes me even more passionate about this conversation about what are we leaving them that doesn't involve technology, right? About the human arts and human connection. I hope a lot. I hope so, too. Um, I just want to talk about your book real quick. All right. Um, just for a minute. Um, and so, I mean, it's a really interesting book. You gave it to me the first time we met in person and um it's insights into influence and so it's what I, I like books like this because it's very digestible right you can it, it, it's a collection of interviews with a lot of great scientists thinkers politicians etc cetera, etc cetera. and i i recommend the book to people a it's good and you'll get a lot of information but it's something that if you're a busy person you can pick up read one of the interviews put down and you know you don't feel like you're losing something if you're not able if you don't have time to read for a week um but this also relates to the company that you've started right and sort of tying this together of influence in communication you've got a couple of really great ted talks so i thought it's interesting you did one for um ted education that has been particularly popular on the language of lying yeah. <laughs> that's really good um but what i mean, what prompted you to i mean putting together a book is hard a writing books tough i'm you know embarking on that journey myself this year congratulations so it's, it's, thanks. and good luck yeah right <laughs> um what was the need you saw
1: there i i believe that writing is a great way to elevate your thinking mm and so what I wanted to do was, you know, I'd been working on, on this problem for like a decade. And I felt like I was at this, this moment where I had learned a lot and thought a lot. And I, I'm not really like a journalist. I've, I've tried journals and things like that. But I, I wanted to formalize some of my own perspective and some of my own thinking. Mm. But I'm also humble enough to know that there's other people that have been thinking about this a lot more than I have and from very different perspectives than mine. And so the book is a collection of 21 interviews with people that impress me, people that I look up to and people that I thought would offer me diverse and valuable perspectives about something that I was thinking about. And so I I really intentionally tried to solicit their perspectives and then put a bit of a through line through that from my own perspective, which was A, mostly data, Mm. and then B, just the commonality of the conversations that I had just sort of been part of in those interviews over the past, you know, six months that it took to, to collect those. Um, The book really brought out sort of a formality of my own thinking and my own process. And and so in some ways it was kind of a release of that, but also hopefully a gift to others as a consolidation. But, but as you said, like a digestible consolidation of what does it mean to be influential? I mean, the best book on influence is probably Cialdini's persuasion book. But that's very procedural, right? It's like here's the six forms of persuasion, and I wanted to offer something that was a bit of a more modern perspective, but also just more of a kind of twenty one different thought leaders, social scientists leaders, people we respect like adam grant yeah and and you know if you if you got to sit with Adam and said you know why why'd you do this like right. why'd you why'd you start doing this really impressive thought leadership that you have, Adam?" and understand, well, was he doing it because he was trying to make money? Was he doing it because he wanted to be a better professor? You know, where did where did that authentic sort yeah. of motivation come from? And, and being able to ask those questions of people like Adam was an honor and bring that forward and also use that to inform my own perspective on influence.
0: Yeah. I, his interview in the book I, is one of my favorites because I love the way he talks about, you know, when he's pursuing an idea – like the Venn diagram that he's looking for, <laughs> yeah. I thought was super interesting. And, you know, I have tons of post-it notes in the book, but a, a lot of underlining in his interview because, you know, he has a great way of thinking about systems. He does. Um, Remarkable. He, he can just kind of like we were talking about Seth Godin earlier, uh, but that kind of mind that I just is beyond me, but they can just look at something and they just almost like they can take it in their hand and turn it around and turn it upside down and see all different sides of it almost instantly, which is crazy to me. Right.
1: Yeah. The, the thought leaders I love, right,
0: are the people that can look at common
1: problems that you and I face every day and offer us a novel perspective. Right. it kind of gets back to that concept of surprise. Yeah. And one of the other interviews in the book that I thought was remarkable was Dan Ariely. Yeah. Uh, right. Really, really fascinating perspective. And then back to the comment earlier about parenting, you know, Becky Kennedy, uh, Mm -hmm. her work right now on parenting, like she is, she's massively influential in our household because Mm -hmm. she offers new ways of novel ways of dealing with kids that I would have never thought of. I don't think she's using AI to do that, right? I think she's, she's really a creative thinker and bringing forward these really interesting ways of behavioral guidance for parents. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's really fun for me to learn
0: those. Cool. Um, I'm gonna. There's a. <laughs> I'm gonna play one of your own cards here. Um, something you ask in those interviews in the book <laughs> is, um, you know, if you could broadcast a message or you know, if you had a billboard and so you know, if there was something that you could tell to everybody in the world, what would it be?
1: You know, I'm gonna respond with the same way that everyone I asked that question, which is like, that's a tough question. Yeah. Can I think about it? <laughs> Uh, you know, I a little bit primed by our conversation, but I, I think it's embracing humanity. Yeah. You know, I, I think, uh, embrace the humanness of this experience and the mm-hmm. shared experience that we have. So embracing
0: humanity would be my billboard. Uh, amazing. And one that I ask every guest is what would the world look like with more listening? Better. Yeah. Yeah man thanks for this conversation i'm so glad we finally got to sit down and looking at how all of these things connect is really fascinating and what does the human experience look like in the future and how does that relate to technology or not relate to technology and i really appreciate the opportunity to dive into like humanness because i I know that's something that we're both passionate about the relationships and the connection that we both want to see in the world so I appreciate it, man.
1: Thank you. Appreciate Good to see you. it. Yeah, you too.
0: Thank you for listening to Listening on Purpose, hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you're enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and that you're finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with others and leave a rating and review. That really helps. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com for show notes and to subscribe to our email newsletter, which includes special episode highlights, more information about our guests, advance notice of some upcoming special events, and other news. You can find out more about me at timothymyers.com, and from there, connect with me on social media platforms like Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive Producers are Meredith Carter, of Maduras Media and Yours Truly. Creative Strategist is Julie Fiore. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Our original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose.